0: Please turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 3. We're going to look today at verses 14 through 21. We continue this morning in our consideration of the fall and its consequences. Uh, Last Sunday, we looked at the battle over lordship that occurred in the Garden of Eden. We saw that Satan, acting through the serpent, tempted our first parents to doubt the Lord's goodness and to deny the truthfulness of His Word. In their sinful desire to be lords of their own lives, we saw them disobey God's command through eating the forbidden fruit. This rebellion against God for them and for us is the essence of sin. We saw, too, that the result of their rebellion was shame and alienation from God. In their shame, Adam and his wife tried to cover up the effects of their sin by making loincloths out of fig leaves, But it didn't work. So the man and the woman hid from God because they were afraid of him. But in this tragedy of the fall, we saw the goodness of God in that he lovingly drew Adam and his wife out of hiding and to himself. He showed them that it was not shame and nakedness that alienated them from him, but rather their disobedience, their rejection of his lordship. This morning we'll consider the ramifications of their rebellion and the righteous judgment of the Lord God upon their sin. And I pray that we'll see that because of God's great mercy and grace, even the curses of His judgment contain blessings for us. So read with me again from Genesis 3, beginning at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your good and perfect word. It is life, and light and sustenance to us. But we need your help to understand it. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, please illuminate the scripture for us this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the gospel, even in this earliest of texts. And grant me the ability to faithfully communicate the good news and point to Jesus. Would you do that for us, O Lord? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I can be pretty spiteful. I hate to admit that, and as much as I wish that it weren't the case, uh, it's true. I don't usually show it outwardly, but when somebody hurts me, uh, I'm slow to forgive, and oftentimes, unfortunately, even slower to forget. And it often gets under my skin when the person who has wronged me receives some sort of blessing or, or good thing. But fortunately, our loving God is not like that. Even when we fail spectacularly, He does not remove His love from us. Our first parents' sin against God in denying His Lordship was huge. And the unique effects of this first sin were cataclysmic for them and for the whole world. And because God is holy, He had to deal with them and with their sin in ways that we still feel today. Yet even in dispensing curses and judgment for the sin of our first parents, God, in His tender mercy, provides blessings for them and for us. So the main point I want us to see in this text today is that although God must judge sin, He laces those judgments with blessing for His people. God's judgments in the text uh, this morning contain three blessings that I want us to consider. First, in God's judgment is the blessing of division. Second, in God's judgment is the blessing of difficulty. And finally, in God's judgment is the blessing of a deliverer. As I did last week, I'm going to continue to draw heavily from Dr. Ligon Duncan's Covenant Theology class from Reformed Theological Seminary. So first we see from our text this morning that in God's judgment is the blessing of division. Let's look at the cursing of the serpent here. Verse 14 says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. We noted last time that the serpent here is Satan acting through the snake. Now he had orchestrated, of course, his own cosmic rebellion against God sometime in prehistory, and thus he's fallen himself. We see that in places like Job 1 and in Luke 10, 18, where Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. But notice here that God doesn't question the serpent as we saw him question the man and the woman last week. God doesn't try to draw the serpent back to himself or make him see the true nature of his sin. Rather, God cursed the serpent immediately. For Satan, there is no hope of salvation or reconciliation. He is irretrievably lost. We see, too, that Satan is cursed above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. Remember, Moses uh, told us in verse 1 that Satan is really no more than a created being himself. And here God curses him above everything else in creation. The snake, and by extension Satan, is also given here the posture of abject humiliation. God says, On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. God's curse on the serpent involves complete and utter humiliation and defeat. You can't get lower than crawling on your belly and eating dust. Satan's total defeat is decreed by God. It's not complete yet, but it is as sure as if it's already happened. In the cursing of Satan, though, we see that God decrees the blessing of division. God says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. We'll look at the remainder of that verse a little bit later. But what is exactly is enmity? Well, enmity is the state or feeling of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. It's hatred, ill will, antagonism. God first decrees here enmity between Satan and the woman. Now, to be sure, Satan already had enmity toward the woman. That's why he tempted her. He hated her and wanted to destroy her. What's new here is that God now gives enmity to the woman towards Satan. She was the one Satan had approached with the temptation. She had not been afraid to casually engage with him, which led to her disobeying God. So God will drive now a wedge between the woman and the one who would destroy her soul. But God will also bring enmity to Satan's offspring and to her offspring between the woman's godly descendants and her ungodly descendants, between the redeemed, those who love God, and the lost, those who love sin and self. So what's the effect of this enmity here? Well, For the woman, God again diverts her attentions away from Satan. She'll now be hostile to him. There'll be hatred for him and by extension of sin and its effects. For the woman's offspring... For those redeemed by God and who love Him, there will now be hostility and antagonism between them and the sinful world. Jesus told His disciples in John 15, verses 18 and 19, If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And several times we see Jesus call Satan the ruler of this world. So it's no surprise then that in the, the world hates God and hates his people. Now as Christians, of course, we don't reciprocate with hatred toward nonbelievers, but this enmity God grants makes us hate sin itself and despise the suffering and the misery that it causes. God gives us hostility towards sin and the world that's antagonistic to God. An interesting fact about donkeys, didn't see that coming, did you? (laughs) Is that they absolutely hate coyotes. Now, donkeys are not large animals, as you know. They are generally docile creatures. They don't have sharp fangs or claws with which to defend themselves. Coyotes, on the other hand, are cunning and stealthy predators. They they hunt at night and in packs. And like their wolf cousins, they have powerful jaws and uh, sharp fangs. They often wreak havoc on livestock. They routinely take sheep and goats and calves, foals as prey. And because of their relatively small size and few defenses, you would think that donkeys would have a natural fear of these predator coyotes. Yet, oddly enough, donkeys have an inherent hatred of coyotes. We might say even that God has put some natural enmity between the donkey and the coyote. For this reason, farmers and ranchers will often sprinkle a few donkeys in with their herds. These donkeys then act like guards over the herd. When they see a coyote, they'll instinctively chase them off. And if they catch or corner a coyote, they'll even kill them by stomping them to death with their hooves. So donkeys with their inborn enmity toward coyotes serve as a natural wedge driven between the farmer's herd, which he wants to protect, and the predator that seeks to destroy them. In a similar way, the enmity which God has decreed in our text serves to protect us. It creates division between God's people and the enemy of their souls. It drives a wedge between the redeemed of God and the sinful world. It repels believers away from sin and drives them toward God. Through this enmity, God's people are made to be enemies of sin. And Do you realize what a great blessing that is for us? For the believer, while we no doubt will continue to struggle with with sin, it will be just that, a struggle. We cannot be comfortable and content in our sin. We can't be satisfied by it. We can't revel in it or enjoy it without guilt and shame. We cannot continue to live at peace with our sin, and thus we cannot be fully given over to it. God's blessing of enmity with sin pries us from sin's embrace and drives us toward God whose offspring we really are. So in God's judgment on our first parents, we see there's great blessing in this division which God infuses between His people and the love of sin. The second aspect of God's blessing in this text is that in God's judgment is the blessing of difficulty. In bringing judgment on Adam and his wife, God does not bring down the full weight of His punishment upon them. They aren't instantly destroyed and utterly abandoned by God as they deserved. Rather, God spares them from His total and eternal judgment. But that doesn't mean that He's indifferent to their sin. There are real consequences in God's judgment on Adam and his wife that we still feel today. God's judgment hits them at the very core of who they are and in the particular roles they were given by God. In Genesis one twenty-eight, Moses says, tells us that after creating the man and woman in His image, quote, God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This has been called the great mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over all things. This is the good and fulfilling work that God gave to our first parents in the garden. But God's judgment for their sin, fulfilling these roles, is made exceedingly difficult. Let's look first at God's judgment on the woman. His judgment brings difficulty in childbearing. Verse 16 tells us, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Certainly in view here is pain in giving birth. And while I've not personally given birth, I have it on pretty good authority that it's a painful experience. Even with all of our modern medicine, the pain of giving birth cannot be completely eliminated. And so this judgment given thousands of years ago is still felt by mothers even today. But as commentators have noted, the pain spoken of here is not just limited to the birthing process. It must also include an increase in trouble in the raising of children. Now certainly there's no question that the children are one of life's greatest blessings. Psalm 127.3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Yet children, like their parents, are still born in sin, and they're still sinners themselves. They'll at times disobey and dishonor their parents, and they will at times cause heartache and frustration. They will experience pain of their own disobedience, which we as parents feel with them. So in this judgment of God, the mandate to be fruitful and multiply will now be accompanied by pain, heartache, and difficulty. Next we see God's judgment brings difficulty in marriage. Verse 16 continues as God says to the woman, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The word desire here is the same word that God later uses when He speaks to Cain and says sin's desire was for him. It wanted to possess and control him. As a product of the fall, the woman would want to control her husband in contravention of the roles given to them by God. The husband's role as head of the family was established before the fall. The Lord God formed Adam first from the dust of the ground, and then He created the woman from Adam's own rib. Genesis 2 tells us the woman was Adam's helper, made for the man and given to him. That doesn't in any way diminish her, but it does demonstrate God gave the man and woman different roles. But Adam abrogated his role here as head of the family. We see God call Adam out for this in verse 17 where the Lord says to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Adam listened to his wife and not to God. He did not lovingly lead his wife in remaining obedient to God's command. And instead, he watched passively as his wife conversed with the serpent and took the fruit and ate. And then he did the same thing. God's established roles for them were turned upside down. And as a result of their sin, God's judgment brings strife and difficulty into their relationship. The woman would try to control her husband contrary to God's established family structure. And the husband, rather than lovingly lead, would now be consigned to rule over her. In perfect harmony, you don't have to rule. That's necessary only where there's strife and friction. So rather than lead in love, the husband will now rule in a struggle. Sin corrupted both the willing submission of the wife and the loving headship of the husband. And as a result of God's judgment, there arises a perpetual battle of the sexes over headship of the family. So now let's turn to God's judgment on Adam. His judgment brings difficulty to work. Work is a good gift from God. He gave it to Adam to do in the garden. It was fulfilling. It brought satisfaction and true joy. But as the mandate to be fruitful and multiply would now bring pain to the woman, God's judgment now causes Adam's work in subduing the earth to be filled with pain and frustration. After denouncing Adam for his disobedience, God continues in verses 17 and 18, telling Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. Adam must cultivate the earth in order to eat and provide for his family. But as a result of Adam's sin, the very ground itself is cursed. The ground previously produced fruit and good plants in abundance, but now the earth itself will fight back against him. It'll still produce food, but now it will also produce thorns and thistles among the good plants. So that simply growing food for survival will now be a painful endeavor and a source of constant frustration. Further, God's judgment makes Adam's work hard. You see in verse 19, God says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Before the fall, Adam just had to reach up and grab the fruit of the trees. Work was easy. Now growing Food to provide for his family will be hard labor as the man is condemned to live by the sweat of his brow. So as a result of Adam's disobedience, God's righteous judgment now makes pain, frustration, and weariness the very hallmarks of work. These judgments of God bring incredib- incredible difficulty on our first parents and ultimately we feel the effects even today. But even in the midst of these judgments, there is blessing in the difficulty. How on earth is that? Well, by showing us that even the most precious and rewarding things in this life cannot bring us complete satisfaction. God's judgments here strike at the deepest root of our being. They touch those things that are most central to who we are, the things that are most important to us, our families and our livelihoods. These are often the things that are the most pleasurable and fulfilling in life. But because they are pleasurable, and fulfilling. Our tendency is to turn them into things we look to to find meaning and self-worth. For some of us, there may be a tendency to seek fulfillment in our families. We may look to our spouses to meet all of our physical or emotional needs. or We may see our children's successes as validation of our parenting ability. Others of us may be inclined to seek true meaning and satisfaction in our work, looking to success and prosperity and recognition to provide affirmation of who we are. To be sure now, our families and our vocations are precious and good gifts from God, but they cannot be the sources of true meaning in life that can only be found in God. So God's judgment in making difficulty inherent in these things is really a blessing because it ensures that, we will never be able, that they will never be able to completely satisfy us. If there's anybody in human history who understands this, it was King Solomon. As you know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon gives the account of his efforts to find meaning in the pleasures life has to offer. He tries his hand at everything, and he does it in massive, over-the-top ways. He, of course, was king over Israel, the son of the great King David. He had God-given wisdom that surpassed everyone who had ever lived. His wealth was nearly inconceivable. And so was his family with 700 wives and 300 concubines. He built the temple of God. He built great place, palaces for himself along with vineyards and gardens and parks and lakes. He had it all. As 1 Kings 10.23 tells us, Thus King Solomon excelled over all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. So if there was ever anyone who could find meaning and identity in family and work or pleasure, it was Solomon. But what did he find? Solomon tells us himself in Ecclesiastes in chapters 1 and 2. He says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. The pleasures of family and domestic life could not satisfy his soul. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Nor could Solomon look to his work and accomplishments to bring Him true joy. In chapter 2, verse 11, Solomon says, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He had tested every worldly pleasure and accomplishment to the maximum. And Solomon says in chapter 2, verse 17, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. He could just have easily had caught the wind in his hands as to find complete satisfaction in even the best things that life has to offer. So Solomon reaches this conclusion. He says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toll. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. The blessing for Solomon as it is, for us, is that the inability of family or work or pleasure to bring true satisfaction makes us see that our souls can only be content in God. Our marriages, our children, our work can be the most beautiful and meaningful things in life, but even they cannot satisfy the deepest need and longing of our souls. They were never meant to. Only God can fulfill that role. So God, in His righteous judgment on our first parent's sin, makes these things difficult. No matter how wonderful our children are, there will be pain and heartache associated with being a parent. No matter how strong our marriages are, there will always be times of friction and frustration. No matter how fulfilling our jobs may seem, there will always be difficult days, stern bosses, frustrating co-workers, and disappointing results. So when you experience that hard day at work, when you get into an argument with your spouse or when your child frustrates you, remember the embedded blessing that because these most dear things in life cannot fully satisfy us, we're driven to look for something, or more rightly, someone who can. We've seen that God's judgment is, contains the blessing of division. We've seen that in God's judgment is the blessing of difficulty. So we see in our final point that in God's judgment there is the blessing of a deliverer. The judgments on the man and the woman we've considered so far strike at the the core of our living. But it's this last aspect of God's judgment which is the most serious and which most clearly shows that Adam and his wife need a deliverer. God's final judgment decreed physical death to Adam. Look at verse 19 where God tells Adam, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken." For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God had warned Adam that in the day he ate the forbidden fruit, you shall surely die. And the truth of God's Word is borne out here in verse 19. The consequence of man's sin really is death. God was right. Satan was a liar. Physical death would come to Adam and his wife because of their disobedience. And through their death... Through their sin, death comes to us as well. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. If they and we will ever be freed from the judgment of death, if death is not to be the end of the story for mankind, then we need a deliverer. But is there hope of deliverance for us in this text? The clear answer, friends, is yes. God promises a deliverer. We're going to jump around a little bit here, so stick with me. Look back to verse 15. God, in cursing the serpent, says he will put enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And then there's this most beautiful promise from God in the midst of his judgment. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is known as the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. It is the first reference in the Scripture to the coming of a deliverer. Matthew was not the first to mention a Messiah, nor was even Isaiah. It's all the way back here in the garden, where in the midst of pronouncing judgment on the serpent, God promises that a deliverer will come. And this deliverer will destroy the serpent. The ESV says, He shall bruise your head But I love the NIV translation here. It says, He will crush your head. Satan will be ultimately, finally, and completely defeated. He will be crushed by the Deliverer. This Deliverer will not only destroy Satan, but will defeat the sin and death that entered the world through Adam's disobedience. All the details of who this Deliverer is or how God would use him to deliver his people are not clear to our first parents at this point. That will be revealed as Scripture unfolds, but the hope of a coming Savior is right here in Genesis three fifteen. In response to God's judgment and His judge, God's promise and His judgments, we also see that Adam believes in the Deliverer. Now, jump forward with me again to verse twenty, to a verse that appears to come out of nowhere. God has just told Adam, "You are dust, and to dust you shall return." And Adam and his wife will suffer physical death as judgment for their sin. That is certain. So having received a death sentence, what is Adam's reaction? We see in verse 20, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. What? Doesn't he not understand what just has occurred here? God has decreed that death is coming, and Adam decides that now would be an appropriate time to give his wife a name. What's going on? I'm convinced that what we see here is Adam's belief that while they will die physically, yet they will live through the work of the deliverer, God promised in verse 15. If death were to be the ultimate end for them, there would be no need to send a deliverer. They would die as a consequence of their disobedience, and without God's intervention, they would remain dead. In other words, God only needs to intervene if He wants to change that outcome, which He does. This deliverer would change the outcome of death for Adam and for all of God's people. He would bring life. And so the woman who had not been given a name to this point is given the name Eve, which is translated life or life giver or mother. Even though they were under the condemnation of physical death, yet somehow they would live. This deliverer would bring life to them and would come through Eve. Now notice again at this point that Eve had not born children and she was not pregnant. We don't see that until chapter 4. Yet the text tells us she was the mother of all living. So even though there were no children yet, because God promised one of her offspring would crush the head of the serpent, Adam knew there would be children to come. Thus Eve, though not pregnant yet, would become a mother. And not just a mother, but mother of the living. Adam believed the promise of God, and the naming of Eve was his declaration of hope in that promise. Though they would die physically, yet they would still have life through the promised Deliverer. Now surely it was not entirely clear how God would do it, but Adam nonetheless believed. So for Adam and Eve then, the coming of a Deliverer meant they would have life. But that's not how it would be for the Deliverer. The text finally shows us the cost to the deliverer. Look back again at verse 15, where God says to the serpent, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Whereas the NIV says, You will strike his heel. In the crushing of the head of the serpent, the deliverer would be struck by the serpent. That would mean something to the Israelites to whom Moses was writing. For in the ancient world, when a deadly serpent struck your heel, you were dead. So in this first reference to the gospel, we see that the Deliverer will destroy Satan, but he will die in the process. Adam and his descendants will be given life, but the cost to the Deliverer by whom that life comes will be his own death. We see further foreshadowing of the Deliverer's atoning work, In the last verse of our text today, verse 21, after Adam names his wife Eve the mother of all living, we see God perform a very personal and physical work for them. Verse 21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. As we discussed last week, Adam and Eve's own efforts to cover their sin by fig leaves were in vain. They could not cover the effects of their sin by their own work. But here we see God making for them an effective covering, not of leaves, but of skins, not of inanimate objects, but of the hide of animals. First blush, this might not seem noteworthy to us, but remember where they are. They're in the Garden of Eden. There had been no death up to now. Adam and Eve had never seen death and probably hadn't even seen blood. But here in this loving act of God in making a covering for the shame of their sin, they saw the horror of death. If you're a hunter and have ever killed and butchered, butchered an animal, you know it is a sobering and very bloody affair. As they saw God kill another animal and take its hide for their covering, I'm certain the gravity of their sin became shockingly apparent. God's work of atonement and the covering of Our sin is foreshadowed in His killing of animals to clothe Adam and Eve with skins. For Hebrews 9.12 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The only way the sin of man could be covered was by the death of another, the death of a substitute. Again, for Adam and Eve, there are only shadows and hints of God's redemptive plan here, but even though they couldn't see the details clearly, they knew something wonderful was coming. Ultrasounds of babies in the womb are amazing things. You may have seen the the 4D ultrasounds they have today that produce these incredible, clear, crisp color images of the child. It's providing literally what seems like a window into the womb. But the beautiful images produced by these modern ultrasound machines weren't available in the late 90s and early 2000s when Lori and I uh, were having children. Far from being clear photographs, the ultrasounds of that time produced these grainy black and white images that sort of looked like a handful of pepper thrown onto a white tablecloth. Because if that wasn't hard enough to see during the course of the ultrasound itself, the, the grainy images constantly moved around the screen in real time. Since we were not medical professionals, we had no way of really understanding what the ultrasound was showing us. It was completely unintelligible. We didn't have the training or the ability to fully appreciate what we were seeing. The nurse would position the wand on Lori's belly and say, There, do you see? Um, no, <laughs> it really didn't. Then she'd point out on the screen a little white dot there in the corner and say, That's your baby. I'd love to tell you that I could see the baby clearly, but I couldn't. But I knew that Lori was pregnant. And that's why we were there. And I could see what the nurse pointed to. So while I couldn't make out clearly all the details of the baby through that grainy picture, I knew the child was there. We didn't know whether it was a boy or a girl. We didn't know what color her hair would be or how much he would weigh at birth. We didn't know when he would lose his first tooth or where she would go to college. Yet while we couldn't see it clearly, in that white speck was a promise from God, the promise of a child he was giving us that we would one day hold in our arms and clearly see face to face. In the same way Adam and Eve were given only a shadowy picture of God's promised deliverer here. They could not see Him in full. They couldn't have fully understood God's plan of redemption or how the deliverer would suffer and die to make atonement for their sin. But they believed God's promise that the deliverer would come. Beloved, this deliverer did come. And on this side of the cross, Through the revelation of God's Word, we can see more clearly than our first parents could that this Deliverer who crushes the head of the serpent and brings life to His people is the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15 tell us that Jesus, the very Son of God, took on flesh and blood that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus is the promised deliverer who crushes the head of the serpent and delivers his people from death into life. We're all born under the same sentence of death handed down against Adam and Eve. And by our own sin, we're deserving of death in our own right. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Therefore, like our first parents, we need a deliverer too. The good news this morning is that the promise of life through the deliverer was not a promise made only to Adam and Eve. It's the very promise of God to us as well. In Romans 5, Paul contrasts the sin and death that came through the first Adam and the life that comes through the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17, he says, If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man much more Will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? By God's grace and His free gift of righteousness, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, delivers us from death and brings us to life if we, like the first Adam, believe in Him. And as we see in the Gospels, His deliverance, His atonement for our sin found full expression in 4D clarity at the cross as he bore the curse of God which we deserved. Did you notice this in the judgments of God we've examined this morning, that Satan was cursed. The very ground was cursed. But Adam and Eve themselves were not cursed. That's significant and signals that there was hope for their redemption. There was hope, beloved, because another was cursed in their place. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And enduring the cross for our sin, Christ our Deliverer took upon Himself the curse of God which we deserve, so that through His death, by His blood shed, we could be redeemed and delivered from God's ultimate judgment of eternal life. Beloved, the great blessing in this text of deliverance from death to life is only for those who by faith believe in and look to the Deliverer, Jesus Christ. It's not for all men. Remember, our passage speaks of two lines of men, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. For those who are not in Christ, there are no blessings in these judgments. There will be enmity between you and God, between you and God's people. Life will be full of frustration and pain. Rather than drive you to the one who can grant your soul rest, your sin will become your love. It will be your snare. It will draw you further and further into yourself and away from God. Death will come for you physically and you'll remain in death eternally. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, by faith, there are great blessings here for you. Through the enmity God has placed between you and the world, and by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, your sin will grow increasingly ugly. And you will crave it less and less as you crave God more and more. You'll find great joy in your family, but not ultimate joy. You'll find great satisfaction in your work, but not ultimate satisfaction. Your identity and your meaning will not be bound up in these things, but in the Lord Himself. You'll know that because of your sin, you deserve the condemnation of death, but you will recognize that God sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, as the Deliverer to bring you from death to life. Not just now, but eternally. As Paul said again of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15.45, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Beloved, believe in the promise of God. Receive the blessing offered in this text. And look this day to the Deliverer, the Giver of life, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, thank You for the beauty of Your Word In your holiness, you are right to judge sin and disobedience, but in your goodness and your mercy, you also mitigate the effect of those judgments and lace them with blessing for your people. We acknowledge that we don't deserve that kindness. Let us see the blessing of division you've sown in creating enmity between us and sin which seeks to destroy us. Let us be reminded of the blessing of difficulty you've given even in the most precious things in life, so that we look to you for our soul's satisfaction and meaning. And let us rejoice in the blessing you gave of a deliverer, Jesus Christ, who took the curse we deserved and who gives us life eternal through his atoning work on the cross. Plant these truths deep in our hearts and use them to make us love you more and more each day. In the name of our deliverer, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.